Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssen's tech with Santiago Brand, neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman, and Seaburn Fisher. Oh, the joy, the joy. <laughs> <laughs> our goal is to provide information, promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today, this is going to be Seaburn's first show. Joining us as a guest host slash co-host, you know, we're going to try it out for the month of April, see if we all play nice and get a head start on uh, Mental Health uh, Awareness uh, Month. So, Seaburn, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, of course, we got to pay the bills. Mary Tracy's <laughs> neurotraining strategy offer a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and certified didactic courses. Please give us five stars in Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. And then please subscribe to us on YouTube. That one little subscribe, oh my goodness, the algorithms take off and then everybody's watching it. So please help, help us out. Seaburn Fisher, thank you for coming on board. Seaburn, you have a book out there that we bought, I don't know, we, when we opened, put the shingle up on our door. Could you please tell us about uh, developmental trauma and how you got that book together and a little bit about your background? We had you on the show before, but we get new listeners. And now like a third of our audience is international. So we're going to expose the whole world to you, Seaburn. Well, thank you. Um, I uh, became interested in the issue of trauma uh, primarily as a clinical director of the residential treatment facility in uh, Western Massachusetts, which is where I live. And I started, uh, I worked there for 17 years. And in that uh, process, I learned a few things. And one was that the kids who had the worst uh, outcomes, these were kids who were um, considered untreatable and were had to be um, uh, in a residential facility, state-sponsored. Um, but it was considered one of the best treatment centers in the in the state, we had some of the better outcomes and our outcomes were dismal. And what we started to look at was um, uh, first was uh, attachment issues in kids, how they had um, not, how parents and kids failed to connect in, uh, when they were little for a number of different reasons, not always the parents' um, fault. Um, if there's fault ever to really be assigned here. I had to deal with the treatment side of things, which the attachment literature didn't help with. I became convinced that the, the most useful treatment approach for staff would be dialectical behavior therapy, which was then coming on, just coming onto the scene, which is Marshall Lenahan's therapy for, quote, borderline personality disorder. And I want to put that in quotes because as we approach the mental health awareness, uh, we have to uh, also be aware of the disaster that is the DSM. And I know that Jay and I could talk about this for many shows because it 
it's a disaster in ways that are even we haven't even explicated yet about how much it has funneled the way that people think and truncated uh, uh, any creativity and understanding how you know mental health issues arise. There are no causes for these conditions in the DSM, with the exception of PTSD. So. I have the good fortune of writing about and thinking about and being concerned about developmental trauma or as it is called in the DSM because they wouldn't accept that diagnosis of developmental trauma is PTSD. And PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder is the only disorder that has causes in all of the 157 diagnoses in the DSM. So, and, but, but the cause, of course, is never that the brain was deeply impacted by the effects of uh, attachment rupture or, uh, you know, um, out and out trauma, um, uh, abuse, uh, physical, sexual, emotional abuse. And what we're finding in brain studies is that emotional abuse can be every bit as uh, problematic and have as big impact on brain development as sexual or physical abuse. So that's been my field that it started with these kids in residential treatment. Um, but I also work with adults and it, we didn't, we, even though we did everything we knew how with medic at the residential treatment center, with medications, with uh, therapy, with intensive therapy, with recreational programs, every possible approach we could bring uh, for these kids, uh, we most of them would graduate, not all, but most of them would graduate or leave, would age out of the program and end up in some other program or in prison. So it was a, a dismal uh, situation and, um, uh, and at about the time that I was transitioning out of that position of, uh, was at the time that I was learning about neurofeedback and having my own stunning experiences with training my brain um, as someone completely skeptical about the, the, that you could do anything with electrodes on your head and I had no paradigm to support it. And Jay and and many others have been trying to establish the paradigm so people didn't understand why this works um, for years. But I had no language for it, no paradigm for it. I didn't believe it could work. And, um, and yet it did. So it, it was clearly not. Uh, and so, so that at about the time I was leaving uh, the residential program was the time I was picking up uh, neurofeedback. So the DSM, how long has that thing been out there? I'm going to put the dumpster fire right here, but what, <laughs> what, 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 when did that thing come out? And then it, it was really well intended, you know, uh, uh, diagnosis, therefore treatment, you know, you, sh you should get the diagnosis and there would be an appropriate treatment associated with the diagnosis. Uh, and, and that theory is great, but it doesn't occur. Uh, the, the diagnosis is categorization. It doesn't predict therapy at all. Uh, if it did, there'd be some validity, but even the, the group that authored it uh, declared that it was not valid. It, it was highly reliable. You, know, you get the same diagnosis if you go through the same process, but it doesn't predict how to treat somebody. 
So it's essentially you know, administrative. It's not uh, not a, an assistance towards therapy at all. And ultimately, if you get a diagnosis, it will follow you around mm-hmm. like an albatross. Um, and as a young child, if you get a, a diagnosis that's a, a problem, it's, it's going to hang around your neck through school and through the rest of your life. Uh, you can end up having a, a, an adolescent diagnosis uh, keep you from getting uh, jobs within the government. Um, there, there's all sorts of difficulties with the categorization. And if a diagnosis doesn't work well to predict a therapy, they'll give you another diagnosis. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they tend to multiply uh, uh, like cockroaches. It's, it's, it's an awful circumstance. Uh, Ron Swatsina, uh, de-identified a, a few thousand subjects, uh, all of their medical records um, and their EEG, QEG, and uh, they had uh, 300 and something of them that had been referred in. They found unexpected apoleptiform content as one of the highest predictors of medication failure. Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, that's just for epilepsy, huh? Well, no. 25% of the ADD population, 60% of the autism population, uh, uh, 12% of the anxiety cases, a third of the psychiatric cases that are out there end up having epileptiform content that's unexpected. And if you throw an antipsychotic at somebody who's got an epileptiform discharge, it gets worse. So the, the badly behaving kid who's actually got a temporal epilepsy driving the rage events is going to get an antipsychotic that's going to make them worse. So the, the, the inability to uh, actually look at the pathophysiology instead of some behaviorally you know, linked story that gives you a categorization, you really do need to look at the pathophysiology, not just the story. There and has- goodness knows that uh, adverse childhood experiences now aren't just earlier life trauma. You end up with later life heart conditions and high blood pressures and strokes. And if you have four, four of the 10 ACEs, um, you, you can predict the negative impact on health uh, later in life. So uh, it, it, it's important to get down to the pathophysiology, not just the story of, of uh, trauma. The individual, yeah, and even if it's the story of trauma, which often it isn't, you know, even if people get to the idea, I understand that there's trauma involved, which, for instance, with borderline personality disorder, which is probably the most devastating diagnosis to get, and it's most often given to women. Um, And in clinics, uh, uh, it's reported to me that uh, the because, because borderline personality is really an ethic regulation, severe ethic regulation disorder, right? And you've got, you've got, you've got down to it. And the most expensive disorder in the mental health system, it's the most stigmatized. And in clinics, they will put on the top of a file uh, in red letters, they'll put borderline. Now, what does that do to the treatment of this individual for this treatment? Nothing, nothing good. People avoid these patients if they can. Um, and then, uh, and the, there is literature suggesting that a high percentage of people given that diagnosis also have electroform activity. 50, uh, 50 hertz um, micro, uh, bursts of 50 hertz, right? 
So uh, paroxysmal activity at the very least, and that uh, they are trying to manage these brains and there's nothing with the possible exception of anti-epileptics that uh, are going to address this. And those, those are given, they're, they're called mood stabilizers when they're given by psychiatrists. They're called anti-seizure medication when they're given by neurologists. When neurologists uh, characterize somebody who psychiatrists and psychologists look at as borderline, they call them temporal lobe personalities. They, they have a sense that the temporal lobe, or they have the awareness that the temporal lobes are dysregulated. And there isn't anything that we're doing, including talk therapy, play therapy, any of the standard therapies that can address a brain that's erupting. What we're doing is stigmatizing people with these diagnoses, and uh, it stigmatizes them in all realms of their life, but even in their treatment. Uh, it's a catastrophe. Done some primary developmental work on the uh, neurofeedback approach to treating PTSD and trauma. And uh, you're to be congratulated on um, the, the uh, groundbreaking work. And, and like most groundbreaking work in neurofeedback, it's driven by a clinician, not by a researcher. Uh, and, and it's quite often just intuitive following a, a a a well-educated guess and uh, uh, drilling down on that with a procedure. And, uh, you know, our, our whole field, Camille's work was not, uh, it was research, but it was basically just to see whether you could identify alpha versus not alpha. Uh, German's work turned into clinical work, but it was, it was basically research at the first with, with, with animals and, happened to have a friend who had seizures and got benefit from that. But the, the clinical work was symptom driven. It mm-hmm. wasn't, you, you know, Barry didn't do a QEG to do uh, SMR on his friend or the early groups that were done. Uh, th- these were symptom driven protocols. And, and as yours also was mm-hmm. symptom driven, uh, not QEG driven. Uh, it, it's only after the fact that uh, Sturman started looking at the QEG and fine-tuning kind of where his electrodes may be placed a bit. Um, and, and, you know, it, uh, it, it's, I think, important for people to think in terms of the foundations of our field uh, uh, being uh, driven by the intuition of clinicians and symptom-driven protocols that fine-tune across time based on experience with the protocol. You know, what you did at the very first matured into what you're doing now. And uh, those those steps of improvements and uh, fine tuning uh, end up being the the ground for researchers to dig into with their uh, assessments later of of what's the impact of these approaches. And um, uh, we now have uh, a very high level uh, super fast computers that can uh, do uh, z-score uh, assessments and things such as that that are uh, potential applications but they they still need to uh, develop the literature support for that more um, uh, that even that was uh, an, an intuitive approach to try to normalize uh, abnormal sets of brains but the, the field is, is driven by 
uh, bright clinical people working, you know, hard in an area and getting an idea that uh, a, a form of uh, training the brain may end up being of some assistance. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's been fun to see the field mature over the last 50 years. Um, and I'm sure you've enjoyed uh, watching the changes across time as well. I have. I think that um, uh, I would agree that it's a symptom-driven approach, but that may be the finer tuning. Really, what I'm concerned about is the optimal arousal of the nervous system and how that will manifest in symptoms. So it's even a coarser gradation in a way, Jay. You know, it's like saying, okay, this is... uh, very few uh, people escape from childhood trauma and neglect. Neglect may even be the bigger issue. The circumstances that lead to uh, a, a person suffering developmental trauma with low arousal, right? You just don't, you're just not abandoned by your parents or whatever the situation is, you know, or left in some way. Um, uh, and not regulated. That's the that's the fundamental thing. Is that the child parent dyad has it uh, has or, or or triad has not regulated this infant for whatever even the infant's uh, neuro uh, neurology is hard to regulate, and there's no help to the parents or the parents have their own histories. There's never blame in this. There's just reality of of the difficulty that uh, children can have and that uh, their parents have had as children that carries on from generation to generation. And, and that we have in all of our practices to date, we have focused on the mind. Uh, we've focused on the mind in terms of uh, meditation and the whole, all the traditions of meditation have uh, really ignored the brain um, the traditions of the mind, which is where Freud was focused when Freud was a neurologist, but he was focused because he couldn't, there wasn't anything to be focused on in terms of neurology. Was, there was no way to look at anything. So he became the master of the mind, right? He, he became uh, uh, focused on the mind. And so we're, 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 we've, we've desynchronized the brain and the mind. It's like they don't, they don't link together. And what this whole field of neurofeedback is, is saying, oh, a dysregulated brain gives rise to a dysregulated mind, period. That's just the way that goes. So you can take a look at the dysregulation of the, of the person's thinking and behavior and say, huh. And you can do this with, uh, with help of a cue, or you can do it following a symptomatic assessment. And say, uh, training this brain will help them uh, manifest a different kind of set of behaviors and of thinking, of capacity, of learning. All of those things change when the brain regulates itself, which it originally, for whatever reason, failed to do. Seaburn, what are the age ranges for the development? Uh, Are there, is it zero to five? Because I'm representing the moms and dads out there that are, wondering about developmental, what are the age ranges that you really got to keep an eye on? I mean, you can't, nobody's perfect. You're going to have issues, dings and dents here and there as, you know, going through life. But what are the, the ages you really got to watch out for? 
you know, there's a way in which it's almost 100% likely that the parents that are concerned about developmental trauma need not to be concerned, that they're already worried about their kids, right? They're attending to their kids. And then then we all have to deal with the fact that we were kids ourselves and that we have carried forward certain uh, issues and we have our own brains as parents and our kids are going to have to deal with whatever we, you know, bring into the mix. Um, it's clinicians that have to be concerned about developmental trauma. And the parents tuned into this workshop are, or this podcast are not going to be people that I'm uh, particularly concerned about. But the devastation, we have looked at the devastation in terms of sort of characterological issues or in terms of behavior issues or in terms of these devastating diagnoses when we need to be looking at it in terms of how can we help this individual who's got their own individual brain, which has its own, is, is, in, is you know, I've, I've described the brain as the, the fingerprint in the quantum domain, right? Everybody's got their own fingerprint. It's completely unique, right? Well, it's like we, we can't characterize a brain as other than uh, also unique, and that is in, you know, t- to me is that fingerprint in the quantum domain. So d- developmental trauma is a, is a, is an attachment problem. It's when parents aren't, aren't paying attention to their kids for whatever reason they, they can't re- help regulate this child, because it's the whole process of affect regulation through attachment, through concern, soothing, empathy, understanding, attunement, that allows for uh, the baby to become regulated um, and uh, and to develop ultimately a prefrontal cortex, which is beginning as early as age one. Alan Shore's work um, historically has been used by others uh, as, as foundational information. And he looked at the face-to-face encounters with infants and parents and uh, found that that ended up helping to develop the neurochemistry of the emotional system, help regulate the baby's uh, internal level of arousal. Um, and, and that basic interaction was, the, uh, was something that triggered uh, uh, surges of development neurologically. And obviously missing the face-to-face is one form of trauma, uh, you know, uh, neglect uh, uh, an infant in an orphanage with no mobile hanging above them and only uh, seen twice a day for a quick change. Um, th- th- there's no face-to-face development there. Uh, and then at a year to two years, um, separation uh, the, the separation of the, the parent from the infant uh, ends up being an issue that has to be developed. And at that point, instead of being more of a right frontal development, uh, he, he points to the left temporal area uh, as, the, as the location that shame and guilt, which are associated with withdrawal of, of attention, are developed. But the, you know, the, this you know, age zero to three uh, is a f- fundamental development. You don't really have your background alpha rhythm until three, four, five. 
So uh, the, you know, the, the, these are uh, uh, experiences that are going to be encoded in deep in the brain in frequencies that are not present as an adult consciousness. Uh, you've, you've got it uh, buried in slow activity and the alpha theta style training is one of the ways to achieve access to this deeply buried information that as an adult, it's kind of pre-conscious or unconscious. It's, it's nibbling around the foundations of how you function, but uh, you you have to get down into that state to actually access it uh, to, to end up, uh, excising it essentially with the, uh, the adult awareness that's held in the alpha state and, and the ability to achieve uh, the, the access to that information. Uh, the, the, the sometimes abreactive, but quite often uh, not that dramatic, but uh, just access to the information so you can deal with it. And uh, uh, I think neurofeedback provides uh, that access in PTSD, uh, but it's, that's, that's not the first step, uh, usually. There's a lot of uh, things you have to do prior to jumping to alpha theta. Um, as the people that did Peniston's work, uh, which was alpha theta training, found if you've got an alpha problem or a theta problem in the EEG prior to the alpha theta work, that can be exacerbated by the alpha theta training. You have to do some pre-treatment before you jump into alpha theta. Uh, you know, certainly we're talking from the aspect of trauma and neurofeedback. Uh, me as a neuropsychologist, you know, I, I test a lot of kids and I would add that there's a lot of in utero uh, development going on or executive functioning begins to develop in utero. And, you know, I always think of um, the reflexes, you know, as a uh, in utero being your, you know, one of your first jobs is to get born. Like you, there's a fancy somersault that you have to do to get out. And when, and then there's C-section births and we can go into all the um, other kind of issues that can happen prenatally. And, you know, when there's dysfunction there, then, you know, that translates later in life to you know, numerous host of issues in terms of executive uh, development, things like that. And so we're talking about, I'm talking about physical development and any of the anomalies that can occur. Um, but, you know, we can root it back to the trauma too. There, there's certainly a lot of trauma uh, a pregnant mom can, you know, experience and that could certainly translate into issues with, with a baby. So development happens even before age zero. Let, let me comment on that, uh, Laura. Um, there is a case in the in my book um, which um, illustrates exactly what you were saying. I was working with a young woman that had been my patient. She was on her thirties, but she had been my patient as a as a um, in the residential treatment center, and had gone on to therapeutic foster care. Had married a a man with bipolar illness had a lot of, uh, she had uh, two um, live births, one abortion, and she got pregnant um, with a guy that didn't want this baby and at one point punched her in the stomach. Assault on the mother is one of the uh, worst indicators for um, attachment disorder later in life. It's like the, the in utero infant can't even be uh, protected, okay? There isn't a safe womb. There's no, 
in the Freudian sense of going back to the womb. There's no good womb to go back to. Uh, so this baby um, was uh, developed as she developed and movement began, which was about uh, uh, five months uh, in utero. She started moving uh, and wildly. Uh, and, and her mother said, I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have, uh, I, she said, I, I don't think this way, but if I did, I, I could have thought this baby was aggressing on me. It was elbowing and kneeing and, you know, moving constantly. So uh, she had been doing neurofeedback training. She had come back to me as an adult to try this thing because she was so tired of being constantly triggered as an adult. Um, and she had no particular faith in neurofeedback, but she needed to try it. So uh, we did, and she was a very good responder to neurofeedback. She calmed down. Um, then she got pregnant by this guy. And, um, uh, and th there are many aspects of this case, which are so worth going into, but, but this one in particular. So uh, this, this fetal movement is started while I was away. I was presenting actually with Jay over in Austria. And um, uh, when I came back, she was... Um, uh, uh, she told me about this and I, I had just begun to look at a placement called FPO2 and we want to go into that placement because if I show it and I talk about it, people are going to try it without proper, but they have to think about this protocol because it's going to be very powerful. But I had already known that she liked this protocol, calmed her down. It, it seemed to quiet amygdala reactivity. That was why I, that's always been my search in neurofeedback. How do I quiet feel? So I, I had temporal lobe training before that, uh, T4, P4, that was very useful to her. I added the FPO2 and she felt blissed out. Now I'm adding it a month later, this utero stuff in utero activities happen. And as I'm training, not at the other protocols, but at that site, this uh, fetus, this fetal movement just stops. She said, this baby has rolled over and gone to sleep. So terrified. I'm just terrified. What has happened here? Okay. And she comes back and within three days, the fetal movement had come, had returned. It wasn't quite as bad. We, we, uh, she wanted to do that training again. And uh, yet again, the, the fetus responded in this way to that particular protocol. This baby was born uh, regulated, uh, easy to soothe, uh, never sucked her thumb, which is an interesting little piece to pay attention to for those who are following, you know, if you train the pregnant women to look at how the babies do, right? And I pre and, and there were a lot of things that were quite exceptional about this baby. But, um, you know, that might have been her individual, whatever. Um, but I presented this case at, um, at, uh, at ISNR when Alan Schroer was in the audience. And what uh, he said was that it was at the time in utero that the amygdala was coming on, the right hemisphere amygdala was becoming activated 
the baby was responding and that when we calmed the mother's amygdala, we calmed the baby's amygdala. This should be replicated. This should be, uh, this should be available to people, right? This should be, because this is, to Laura's point, this is the intergenerational transmission of trauma. This is the activation of the mother's nervous system in the fear, the domain of fear that activates the baby. And, uh, and this phenomenon that we are, uh, that she was um, experiencing is often considered to be a pediatric bipolar illness, a predictor of pediatric bipolar illness. What I think it is predictive of is, is uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma. So for the expect for the expecting mothers out there, is there a recommended prenatal neurofeedback training that you would would you calming recommend for anxiety calming, or calming arousal? What whatever helps that particular person calm arousal, and that's can be quite straightforward even at C four, right? It's just calming arousal. Uh, and you find a frequency that helps that particular individual feel calm and and that helps everybody <laughs> and clearly this case suggests it helps the the baby in utero helps the dad too and the husband it helps the husband <laughs> <laughs> helps everybody and the dad can have some training along the way too so have you guys seen anything since like 2007 i think that's when the iphone came out so the kids would be, I don't know, 15 now. Do you see any di- different types of diagnoses from when that iPhone came out and the parents paying attention to the phone and not paying attention to the kid? Just curious. You know, if you, if you roll back the clock to 1999, Lyndon, Lubar, and Monastra did a theta-beta ratio paper and CZ's theta-beta ratio was identified as a biomarker for PTSD. Now, the theta-beta ratio was replicated in 2001. Uh, That data was given to the FDA. They approved theta-beta ratio as a diagnostic biomarker for ADD, ADHD. The problem is that since 1999 to now, adolescents get on the average two hours less sleep per night potentially because of media. In fact, that's the best guess, you know, uh, going to bed with your tablet or iPhone and uh, having it uh, be a texting uh, uh, kind of a reverberating circuit of waking people up. Um, So you don't fall asleep uh, on time and you, in the morning you get beeped and email coming in and whatnot. So uh, the two hours less sleep per night right now, the normal population has a worse theta-beta ratio than the clinical group did oh, in wow. 1999. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that study is a meta-analysis study uh, that, that was uh, uh, published uh, basically looking uh, at the theta-beta ratio. And let me... But that's, see, that's for ADHD, right? Not PTSD. Uh, that, that's correct, but yeah. the same sleep wanted. issue and, and arousal-related change ends up being common for 
the entire group of kids. So, so uh, this is the clinical group, uh, mean and standard deviation in 1999. And this is the normative comparison. The range of the standard deviations didn't even touch. So it was a very good discriminator. In, in fact, the effect size was, was tremendous early on. But the effect size has plummeted in this meta-analysis. You can see now the effect size is so bad that you really can't use it to discriminate. Here's the normal group now. It's worse than the clinical group was then. And you no longer can differentiate the normal from the clinical. Mm -hmm. So ADD versus normal, the theta-beta ratio doesn't work anymore. Why? Probably because of media. And again, uh, two hours less sleep per night. It's hard to find an EEG uh, that stays wide awake with the eyes closed. <clears throat> In fact, uh, the, the, the inability to maintain a vigilant state ends up being misdiagnosed as ADD. You know, if you're spending time in stage one sleep, you're really not focusing. Um, you know, you can drive a car in stage one. I wouldn't recommend it. You're right next to stage two, which is sleep. Um, but your highway hypnosis, you, you can actually drive a car, stay in your lane. You're not really good on your reaction time. Uh, again, I wouldn't recommend driving that way, but uh, people do. You find yourself down the road at exit 20, and how'd you get there? You know, uh, the last one you remember was five exits ago. So <clears throat> yeah, drowsiness is an issue. And vigilance training, arousal training, uh, ends up being an important thing uh, to do, uh, to, to maintain the ability to regulate this. Anyway, that's, <coughs> that's, uh, something that's happened, I think, because of the media and this drowsiness ends up being something that impacts every single diagnostic category. It's, it's obviously quite visible in the theta beta ratio data, but it isn't just the ADD kids that are doing this. Oh, whoever they, and whoever the ADHD kids are, because there we are quite, again, in a, in a specious diagnostic category. What we, we all have to rely on, but it, we have to remember that this is fiction. So the, the other thing, in terms of your, of the face turning away from the baby, that's really what you're asking about, right? With the phone. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I love this, what Jay just said, this is really important. But it is, it is hard to know Except we know that's not a good idea, right? You can't imagine if you didn't have a phone in that picture that that mother was attached to that baby if she was looking away from that baby the whole time. And and, and as as uh, Jay was saying in the shore, but it's Ainsworth way before Shore. I mean, Shore is Shore didn't start to write his book about attachment. He started to write it uh, as a kind of homage. To, that the brain science was going to uh, substantiate Freud. And then he found the attachment literature. He was directed to the attachment literature, and then it all started to make sense to him what he was seeing. And then he became the person who really reinvigorated the, the understanding of the importance of attachment. But uh, looking away from your baby like that would be seen yeah. as vastly abnormal. Right, it'd be wildly. I mean, if you saw that in a clinic and there was no phone in the picture, say, "What's going on here?" <laughs> right. So, uh, best to put down your phone to be with your baby, 
uh, and uh, to attend, it's going to be very hard. We don't have clinical interviews, at best of my knowledge, that ask the person uh, how much their, uh, or, or I mean, we should, how much their parents used, you know, cell phones or the, the you know, so we don't know. We don't have to discern that, but we could we can imagine how startled we would be if we saw a mother and baby at a table in a restaurant and they weren't looking at each other. But we don't. We're not startled by that when there's a phone in the picture, and often the baby has a phone now too, right? Because they're showing cartoons to the baby on the phone. So the kids not get enough sleep and the parents are ignoring them. And then if we wonder why we're. <laughs> no problem. Right. Right. I've actually seen people in the same room call each other. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, well, they're right there. Look over and talk to them. You know, no, they're, they're texting back and forth in the same room. And, and it, 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 you know, it just strikes me as being absolutely uh, an insane way to end up behaving. Uh, there's a person in the room and you're relating to your phone, you know, um, oh, well. well there's, there's no eye contact, no trust, you know. You know, yeah. the kids today going for a job, yeah. I mean, they're, they can't look the employer in the eye. I mean, it's hard for them to get a job, even though there's so many uh, out there. Uh, how, how do you correct that, guys? You got the moms and dads that say, oops, okay, I screwed up. My kid's 16. What can I do? <laughs> he won't look at anybody in the eye because he's staring at his phone. Take the phone well, away. One of the things that I see uh, very commonly is, is, is that people who can't look at somebody in the face have the area that can comprehend the face. Uh, facial expressions and body language are perceived as a spatial signal. And the right temporal parietal junction here picks that up. And if you actually uh, uh, have this, I mean, this is, it rivals 0102 as the largest background resting state. And with your eyes closed, you you know, you've turned off the input to the back of the head and the visual cortex. But this area isn't getting any input either. And, And literally, if you wake this area up, they will start to be able to perceive faces, body language, uh, on nonlinear uh, kinds of perception. Uh, uh, so it, it's possible to reactivate this location. You know, if you're blind, you've got a cane, a red and white cane. You tap in front of you. Everybody knows you're blind. Well, this person is as blind as a bat, but it's, <laughs> it has to do with faces and body language. We should get a purple cane or a green cane or something like that, so people would know <laughs> you're, you're you're blind as a bat for emotion. But yeah. you know the uh, uh, you can't carry your QEG above your head and tell people that you're not functioning in that area. Uh, but it, it, literally, this this person needs to wake this area up and get it working. We usually do a, a gentle stimulation. Temporal lobes don't like to be overstimulated. There's limbic structures there and you don't want to overdo those. But if you gently activate this area, the alpha, which is a resting state, will drop down and they'll actually start to perceive outside emotion. The difficulty with the therapy is that when you wake up emotional perception and it hasn't ever worked, the first thing it's going to do is misperceive. 
I mean, it's not good at perceiving and whatever comes in is potentially not going to be perceived accurately. Very much like a cochlear implant that gives somebody sound that they've never heard. Uh, Everybody's happy. The baby hears the mother's voice and everybody's happy. But really quickly after all of that, they want to turn it off because of all the noise that they're hearing. Well, it's not noise. It's the richness of your auditory environment. Uh, And you want to turn off your emotional perception fairly quickly for the same reason. You know, that the the perceptions weren't pleasant in some fashion, but you have to stay perceiving in order to get good at it. So um, it's an opportunity for therapy. You turn this area on and then work with them with respect to their perception. But um, until this is working, you, you just, you know, again, give them a green cane, uh, let them walk around and bump into things emotionally. Uh, but this is the argument, right, for, for why we do this, uh, at least in this population that concerns me the most, in, within a therapeutic structure, not just as a technical issue, because yeah. this has a great deal to do then with interpretation, with, uh, with uh, adaption, with understanding what this means. I mean, I have one Asperger's patient of mine, she started to get better, uh, start to discover empathy. Wow. So she'd heard the concept of empathy, but she never felt it. So she started to feel empathy. Empathy often relates to this site as well, because it's reading faces. It's reading, it's, it's, uh, it's being able to interpret the the, the, as, as Jay was saying, the body language, but also the, the facial expressions of, of another person, which she hadn't been able to do. And so, you know, she said, she was describing this experience to me, and I said, well, you've just begun to experience empathy. And she said, oh, this is what empathy, this is what they mean by empathy. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly rich, but uh, again, you, this has to be a guided and interpersonal experience. I don't do I don't do therapy via text. I don't do you know it's hard enough to do it with Zoom, right? To start to to, uh, but there's face and there's vocal tone and there. And so, um, uh, but but to the point here with neurofeedback, this can change just about everything. Did you that? The, the brain is extraordinarily plastic. And eye contact, we, way before I knew anything about neurofeedback, I would work with my patients in the residential treatment program on eye contact because none of them made it. And in fact, it's physically painful if you've had uh, serious trauma in your history and neglect. It hurts to, like, probably it hurts to have a cochlear implant too. It hurts to get that feedback. It physically hurts in the eyes. So people uh, don't practice it, something that hurts. It, it hurts. So, it, you know, I had to work with them on the cost and benefit analysis of making eye contact. And then it has to be genuine. Otherwise, they're staring at somebody. Now, that's genuine eye contact. Well, that's a whole, that's an interpersonal skill. That's a learning that happens between two people, not between a, a person and a computer. So guys, to kick off, uh, you know, to get ready for for May, because we only care about mental health once a year for 30 days, uh, what would be the biggest recommendation if you could make a blanket statement what to do to have better mental health? 
I'm going to throw it out there. I'm guessing you guys are going to say get sleep. Is that what it is? Or what, what would you recommend? It's, I, a, I, it's, it's a big ball of wax, isn't it? But, yeah. you, you know, when, when I wrote the book, um, the, uh, I, I wanted to, at, at the end, summarize how I thought it should best be, neurofeedback should best be utilized. And I don't want to be shy about that here in our forum. Because this is where we get to say what we actually feel, right? Mm -hmm. Sleep is great, but how do you get sleep in this kind of uh, in a noisy environment? So how do we learn self-regulation? And it feels to me that, you know, I, I had rec neurofeedback recommended just about every venue possible, drug treatment, mental health centers, blah, blah, blah. but primarily where I think it should be, where kids should learn the fundamentals of regulation, obviously in their families, if their families are gifted with regulation and, and, and they can bring that to their child, then we're not worried about that kid anymore. But in the, in the schools and gifted children get more gifted and dysregulated children, well, it's all peak performance. All neurofeedback is about peak performance. It's not about disease. It's about getting this brain to work optimally. So your good chess player becomes a great chess player, right? And your kid who's throwing a desk across the room and not, can't read a book starts to be able to read and they don't want to throw books anymore. I mean, they don't want to throw desks anymore. Mm -hmm. They'd rather read. So, uh, uh, you know, we could use this technology that people are so fascinated by. They could become fascinated with their own regulation and their own brains. And we could bring this into the school. That's what I would most hope for, is that every kid gets their birthright, which is in the attachment literature, is self-regulation. And if they've missed that opportunity for whatever chaos they had to encounter as they, as they were uh, children, they get uh, another shot at it through a, a regulating environment that teaches them about emotion and about their bodies and about their birth. And how to, and they get to figure out how to work with their own brains. What a what could be better? I That's think, my I think that uh, sleep is foundational. Uh, one of the things that will slow down the acquisition of neurofeedback's learning curve is people that aren't sleeping well. If you're not sleeping well, you don't have memory consolidation. So if you learn three things. In your session, you remember one the next day instead of three. So it, it takes you longer because you're backsliding because you're not sleeping well. So paying close attention to your sleep ends up being foundational for the rest of the things that you do in your life. There are routine sleep hygiene things that you need to pay attention to. There are some people that need some specific assistance with neurofeedback for, for sleep insomnia issues, but for a normal person, paying attention to your sleep hygiene ends up being the important thing to do. There's a, a period before it's bedtime that you need to wind down. You're not supposed to eat late. Um, pick a routine bedtime to get your circadian rhythm trained. Uh, make sure the bedroom is pitch dark because light intrudes into your sleep. Uh, 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 you know, drinking alcohol, people, a lot of people think, well, it helps me fall asleep. Well, it ruins the quality of your sleep. 
Uh, so, you know, drinking in the evening is, is something you have to pay attention to, you know, use moderation. Uh, the, the, the quality of your sleep ends up uh, affecting everything in life. So uh, pay close attention to your sleep hygiene. If and you think sleep hygiene, what's that like a shower before you go to bed? No, uh, the, these are all the behaviors that have to surround your sleep to make it work properly. And again, there are people that have particular problems with sleep. Neurofeedback is a wonderful treatment for insomnia. Uh, we've got biomarkers that can predict when you look at the EGF that the person suffers from insomnia. And when you treat those biomarkers and they're uh, treated effectively, the insomnia goes away. So that it, it's something that we handle really quite well. Um, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't really uh, fully proven until 2005. Uh, but even in the uh, 1980s and 90s, people knew that you could help with insomnia, uh, SMR to assist with the uh, sleep onset and the, the stability of sleep, sometimes some beta even. But the, 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 uh, the, the quality of sleep ends up being foundational. On top of that, put your phone on a leash. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, it, it has to be trained how to behave. Um, uh, what, what time of day do you feed the darn thing with your attention? Uh, um, put, you know, you, you limit your kids' access to media, but your free-range media consumer yourself, it's, it's not a good message for the kid even. So put your phone on a leash and uh, 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 tr- treat it as something that has to be trained up uh, to be used properly. If you fix your sleep and you handle your media properly, it's going to benefit the quality of your life. And um, goodness knows if you end up uh, having a concern over mood state or anxiety or uh, any other thing, uh, there are therapists out there that help with these things. Quite a few of them do neurofeedback to assist. So um, don't don't be shy about reaching out if you have a concern. Seaburn Fisher, thank you for joining this fine crew. How can we learn more about you? Oh, God. Whether you want to? Yeah, uh, I'm going to put it right here. Uh, well, you got I, this book. We're going to yeah, sell I got this, this book. book someplace around here. Um, oh, I'll show you the book. Um, this is the book. Uh, and um, it, it is uh, it, it, developmental trauma is not rare, so we we can explore that a lot more. But um, my uh, I have a uh, a, a web page on seabrandfisher.com, and people can go there. And that's all they need to know. Yeah, we're gonna send we're gonna send them there, Seabird. I'm gonna yeah. try to sell you sell you a couple books so you can uh, buy yourself a cup of coffee. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> if that, if that, if that, if that. Well, latte. Great. Okay. Thank you. All right, guys. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, especially Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies. Offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education, EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback.
Practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEEG certified didactic courses register now at eegstrategies.com. Do you have an idea for a topic or a guest? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. The emails are a-flowing, guys. I'm, I, I'm getting them all. I'm replying to you, and I'm trying to fit them in. Trust me. Uh, we'll get to them all. Or leave us a voicemail in the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel. YouTube is the way to go. Please hit the subscribe. You hit the subscribe, and all of a sudden, the world opens up, and we get popular and we're helping people. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. Where do they get this kind of coverage for that kind of cost? <laughs> Cue the music. <laughs>